You're listening to the eighth episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but it's not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 8, Get Em Out. This song was about that desperate feeling when you start to see how many of the things you think and things you say simply aren't your own original thoughts and feelings at all when you grow up locked away in a church with a heavy hand at unrelenting daily indoctrination. You realize you aren't you much because there just isn't much you that isn't someone else's idea entirely. There's just enough you to be profoundly miserable and grow up locked away in a dark bedroom while things walk around living out your life for you, signing checks in your name. You catch yourself fearing or disparaging, judging or mocking groups, people, and the things associated with them, and you realize this behavior comes from programmed emotional responses. Something that the regular folks from the world enjoy fills you, supposedly living for real, a child of light, outside the dark, evil world with superiority, disgust, fear, shame, guilt, anger, revulsion, or some combination of all of those, what people normally just call hate or bigotry. Hard to remember that when you feel offended or judged, that's not a thought or opinion, no matter how you clothe what then comes out of your mouth next. It's a feeling and mostly not one that comes from you really, but one that you've been trained and conditioned to feel. Any word, whether it starts with an F, an A, a C, or an N, that at any point causes you to feel a stab of offense or outrage, shock, or anger, is a word that you were accidentally or deliberately conditioned to respond to in that precise way. Of course, you were taught literal meanings of words, but deeper stuff has gone on. Same thing with pictures and jokes, acronyms and slogans. You respond in a way that would be quite predictable by someone studying you and aware of your past conditioning and trauma. When my sister is triggered into a panic attack, that's conditioning continuing to work. Like a lot of women, she has something deeper than mere observations or political opinions about a lot of things relating to men and sexuality and power. When she responds or even overreacts to things in that area, she's as surprised as anyone. And we're all a lot like that. You are you, of course, but you are also what you've been formed into, and you didn't form yourself. You were trained from birth. Me? I was there, able to hear the words spoken at our five meetings a week minimum, months before I was ever born, and it continued unabated from then on. Much easier to hear when one's ears are no longer filled with amniotic fluid. Ben, having grown up in very evangelical circles and going on to become a committed brethren missionary, remembers when words that weren't his poured out of him in a store and how he felt afterward. That happened to me one time, didn't it? I ran across somebody and just in the, in the store and I, something came out that was completely religious in my response. And I was like, wow. Afterward, I said, I was like, that was completely not fresh, life-giving words. That was just wrote what you're supposed to say mm-hmm. to that person. And I, I did feel, I felt icky afterwards and I did confess it, my sin. And I told Ed that what had happened because you watched it happen. I don't remember what it was. 
I love my mom. She, she did the best she could, man. I just get so pissed off sometimes, man, because I, there, there's just so much religion still involved with it, you know, and yeah. with her. And, and I, you know, I, if I called her right now and said, well, hey, you know, I, I just did this interview with this guy. She would, oh, Father, Father God, just thank you so much. And she, right there, she started praying. She would, yeah, <laughs> with the, with yeah, the word just. <laughs> Society is just another way of saying people. Conscious efforts were made by individuals to train all of us, especially when we were forming. Unconscious involvement by groups of people formed all of us even more in different, often unforeseeable ways. We are all the answers to equations we didn't write. It would be nice to think we are informed, not just trained, but I am a high school English teacher. And every year I ask my class, what's a noun? And they chorus the entrained words, a person, place, or thing. Then I ask, what's a verb? And they invariably say the same words every semester, an action word. Then I ask for examples, or to pick actual nouns and actual verbs out of actual sentences, and they're completely lost. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, one school had been thoroughly disrupted into the second year of what YouTuber the Critical Drinker calls the unspecified virus of unknown origin. With our instructions to no longer try to teach the curriculum, nor to focus on the learning losses we knew had resulted from it, but rather on kids' comfort, interest, and self-esteem, when asked, what's a noun? Some students answered, something imaginary, or an action. And when asked, what's a verb? One student answered, anything you can use. Well, it must be admitted, I do use verbs on occasion myself. I was tempted, in fact, to utter a verb that starts with F in that one instance. For the most part, when we know and feel and distrust and pursue and say and resent and believe things, it's just not us doing it mostly. It came from elsewhere. It's being done through us to serve other people's agendas or needs. Carl Jung creepily said, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Communism, for example. As an older teen, and in my 20s, I was trying to get my heart and mind free from my birth culture, and they were bound tight, stuck fast. I didn't get it. I didn't do anything fun. In fact, I didn't do much of anything at all. And yet I felt, I was made to feel, more and more wicked each week, more and more like a failure at everything, like some kind of hedonistic sinner in the making. And it was really hard to get free from that. It took time. I shared with punk bassist Kim a personal experience of someone we'd both grown up with who left our group to join a freer brethren one, yet by middle age hadn't seemed to get much freedom. I'll tell you one anecdote. Someone that we went to meeting with in Smith Falls, and there was a division, as you know. Yeah. And his family went with the looser side, the supposedly less strict side, the open yeah. side. And, you know, many years later, he wanted to go out for pizza in Smith Falls. So my sister and I went out for pizza in Smith Falls with him. And we, without thinking about it, thought, well, it's, you know, a pizza, so we'll get a pitcher of beer with it. And we did. We didn't think about it because we had been doing yeah. this for a while. And he was nervous. And I didn't know that he was watching to see if that someone might catch him in the restaurant okay. with the beer. Because we yeah. didn't think that way anymore. We forgot about living that way. And we didn't right. think he was still under it. And we thought, yeah. well, he left in a division to get more freedom from us, right? So he's left. Now he's all free. It's like, no, it's like 20 years later, he's not free. And yeah. and then my, sis my sister wanted to take a selfie with us. So my sister went to take a selfie. And he needed to tell her to make sure that the picture was out of frame. Right. And then he told me that people I used to play volleyball with, if they saw that on Facebook, 
would have a word with him. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Like we're, we're grownups now. Literally. Yeah. Wow. I spoke with Angel who grew up in the children of God cult about freedom of thought and opinion. So I felt like my thinking had been monkeyed with. So I was becoming increasingly aware that, like you said, all my prejudices were formed. There was things that I was judgmental about and and closed to and and ashamed of and afraid of. I had that. And on the other end of things, I felt like I wasn't really supposed to leave. And part of what they had done is program me not to leave. So I felt like I was being messed with and I felt like I couldn't leave. Does any of that resonate or would that have been an opposite situation for you? No. And I think that what you say is totally correct, where they literally build your brain to keep yourself in something that is oppressing you. So you contribute to your own oppression, which continues the cycle of self-hatred that they've set up. People who are not confident in the way that they think can't make good decisions. So if they've already set up your brain to be really confused you won't trust your own thought processes. So even if you have like the doubts or you have this sort of like feeling in your gut that something is not right, everything that they have set up is set up to keep you oppressed and doubting yourself. And the longer that you stay away from looking at that, the worse it is to look at. So I think that there's such a big burden and such a big sort of inner turmoil and inner war going on when you do start to have those doubts, because you are set up to keep yourself in place. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but the thing that people ask me the most that I have trouble explaining is everyone says, well, why don't you just go to a different church? Like, why did you stay? So yeah. how, how have you managed to try to communicate that thing where you can't just leave? I think that anyone who has been in an abusive relationship or abusive power dynamic very much understands that. And I think the people who ask those kinds of questions are people who come from a place of privilege. And what I mean by privilege is that you have had the luxury of not having to deal with terrible human relationship Hmm. because the asking of that question, why don't you just leave comes from a place of having personal agency Yeah, and the people that they're asking wouldn't have like I had no personal agency within this cult and I'm sure you felt less personal agency where like you would probably have to um, communicate all your quote problems or doubts or whatever with your pastor or with your friends and they would all keep you in this sort of place where it feels like everyone is involved in your life and your decisions and it makes you feel less capable or less um, able to make these decisions for your own life on your own so it's an abusive power dynamic and I think the people who ask that have the luxury or privilege of not having been in a abusive power dynamic. Absolutely. And, and the uh, the concept of church is not the same for them as for me. So for them, it's sort of like you go to the church of your choice, you see what's around, you see what you yeah. like. And I'm, I was raised in a group called the Plymouth Brethren, and, and there's a broad assortment of kinds of it. And I think it goes from something that's a very ordinary church to something I do think is a full-on cult. And I think that I was kind of in the one that was maybe 70% of the way to being the cult, but not fully. So the full-on Plymouth Brethren Christian Church has a single man of God, like a single guy in the whole world, and he has way too much say in who gets married and where they live and their money and their jobs and their education. Uh, 
we had the softer version of that where there was strong pressure from the community as to what you did for a living and where you lived and who you married, but it wasn't quite like that. And I should also say that like a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or even like a Catholic, this wasn't the sort of religion where you pick one. It's this is the one. Yeah. And so everything what, else is wrong. <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't okay to go up the street. That would have, God yeah. would have been angry or, or upset. Yeah. And it would have lessened your value, your spiritual value. Mm-hmm. Completely invalidated. If you wanted to be taken seriously by anybody that you were a spiritual person, suddenly now you've gone to the wrong church. So you're, you're not yes. serious. A whole lot of Christian teens said f*** it and got high, drunk, laid, and rocked to their socks at shows and events their friends at school had been enjoying for years. They joined that culture, their natural habitat, just as if they'd always been part of it, and they never looked back, left the church to be right about how wrong they were and not to care about that overmuch. But as Bill said, my own f*** it never worked properly. I was going to purge my life of all dubious pleasures if it killed me. And it nearly did. A Christian man cannot live by rules alone. And the thing is, once you're an adult, you may choose, to varying degrees, to try to leave your childhood anti-culture, anti-community group behind, to move on from it, to try to make up for lost time and connect to all the kinds of people and things you'd grown up cut off from. For some of it, it's very much too late. For some of it, though, you're just in time, long after the fact. When all those 80s TV shows and movies came out of my teens, I couldn't hang out with friends and enjoy them, didn't buy candy and go to the drive-in or the movies with them, didn't talk about what had been on TV last night, didn't dance with them at high school dances, didn't go to hockey games or concerts with them. It didn't matter if David Bowie, Pink Floyd, or Genesis was playing. I had to be at church instead, showing no sign of knowing anything about those things that formed the most precious parts of the other kids' teenage memories let alone talking about those things knowledgeably in front of brethren people. Once I moved out from my folks, I got a VCR and rented all kinds of things I've missed 5 or 10 or 15 years earlier. I watched all of that stuff alone in my apartment. It wasn't the same, but it was something. I watched the 80s in the 90s. Airplane, Police Academy, Ghostbusters, The Naked Gun, The Last Starfighter, Tron, Back to the Future, The Princess Bride, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Gremlins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Star Wars and Star Trek movies, all that stuff. And I went to used music stores and bought plastic bags entirely filled with used cassette tapes and eventually used CDs of all that music I'd not been allowed to listen to on the radio, that had played at all those high school dances I'd not been allowed to attend, that had been in the soundtracks of all those movies I'd not been allowed to go out and see. Long after no one cared about it, I listened to it in my car, driving to work. Some of it was amazing. Some of it, I wondered what the point of it ever was. And the thing was, I had something to work through before I could do any of that stuff. It wasn't just that I had parents forbidding it. Parents who drove half an hour to Brockville to pick up my sister from the fair because she was trying to hear Glass Tiger or Kim Mitchell play there. A mother who could raise one eyebrow like a disapproving Mr. Spock and say, hmm, to communicate disapproval without framing any of it in words I could respond to. It wasn't just that my church strongly disapproved of all of those albums and TV shows and movies and preached against them, and that if I was seen going anywhere in public which incriminated me, such as a movie theater that was just around the corner from the meeting hall, a video rental store two blocks from there, or a concert venue up the street from it, I'd get lectured to try to activate the shame that methodically built into me. The real problem 
was that first I just couldn't deviate from my indoctrination, myself, inwardly. I filled with fear, guilt, shame, revulsion, and all kinds of things at the very thought of doing that. It didn't matter if no one but me knew about it. That was put into me from birth, at church five times a week, at home, and in all of my dealings with church people. The fear and shame of losing face and eventually membership there was palpable. Terror of shaming my whole family and myself was seared into the fleshy tables of my heart like grill marks on a steak. My sister Debbie says a few things about hearing our parents' voices come out of our own brains. I've done a fair bit of, of therapy with um, two different therapists, and the one that I had really, really a good bond with, um, a lot of stuff broke open in relation to how I would, um, when I was dealing with uh, stress, pressure, or conflict, how I would actually become my dad's voice against myself. Mm -hmm. And there was like a duality in me. It was like, Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. Was like, okay, you're having a hard time at work and you're having trouble and you need, you know, some space and time and recovery time. Well, just feeling that that vulnerability of I'm having a stressful year, I might need to take a little time off. Um, my dad's voice was immediately in my head saying, no, you just pull your, you pull your bootstraps yourself up by the bootstraps. You work hard. You don't, you don't crack. You don't, you know, and it took me a while in therapy to actually come to the bottom of that's not my voice. Mm -hmm. That is not actually me speaking, but that's, that is the voice of the father who um, motivated me to, you know, work hard and all of the good things, but it was actually detrimental in times when I needed to rest, maybe I needed some, some therapy, maybe I needed to recover from whatever, um, it was actually trapping me. So that comes to mind. Um, lots of other, tons of other things that just thoughts, you, you can't grow up in a cult without having thoughts that aren't your own. Pretty mm -hmm. much all of the thoughts aren't your own for a long time. And something that I think is very sobering is I used to think it was all like dad getting things wrong. But the degree to which he was doing what he thought people were making him do and telling us what he thought people were going to make him tell us, I think it's really troubling the degree to which this is him trying to do what he thought he was supposed to do to please other unspecified people. John of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church shares how long his upbringing stuck with him despite having moved on from the group itself. I went to, um, to Maidenhead in England um, a few years ago for a reunion of ex exclusive brethren mm -hmm. and the amount of brethrenism that was still there mm -hmm. was quite shocking actually because 30 years was about the average time people had left mm -hmm. someone told me that they were still traumatized and they'd been out for more than 40 years mm -hmm. for myself it was just one specific instance i remember uh, two years after i had left I, I i remember still feeling guilty about my television <laughs> <laughs> i'm the best you can get Guess me yet on the sign losing out from your TV set. No, no I, I didn't mind. I, I wanted my television. Yeah, I had no problem with it. But that black box called the Pipeline of Filth, as it was drummed into me throughout my lifetime, 
uh, for, for that first 22 years. And uh, so these, you know, the neural pathways, they get affected, mm-hmm. don't they, by what we're indoctrinated with. And you can still take these things forward for, for years. And I, I like to think that nowadays, echoes, that's all they are. Right. They're echoes, which you don't have to listen to. You know, I can process them that way and see, see them just as echoes in life. Unlike most of us, John claims he had a religious experience that helped him deal, despite having left his Christian group and upbringing behind. I felt trapped. I felt like there was no hope. And part of that was the church, that it wouldn't let me do anything. And I couldn't see the point in living at some points when I was a young man. Well, uh, to, to the age of 18, I was, um, I was, quite, I was committed to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I turned 18, and for the next four years, I started designing the bright lights of the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, designing, and I realized I was trapped, and I couldn't do these things. And I was mm-hmm. like a broken tug of war. Uh, being pulled from the parents on one side and, and the desires to express and enjoy my life and explore. So and I felt trapped. But uh, when I was 12, I, I, I was on my own in my bedroom and um, Jesus appeared to me and filled me with love. Mm-hmm. And it was an experience of which never left me. But uh, when I went down from my bedroom downstairs, I went into the exclusive environments. For the next 12 years, I assumed that this Jesus of love who had filled me with his love was an ex- was the exclusive bedroom? <laughs> of course, <laughs> not a, not available to other other Christians. Yeah, and of course, their their Bible readings was always skewed towards exclusive brethrenism, and Jesus was always interpreted that way. But, but so that never left me, and and since then I've had more experiences of of Jesus and His love, and so mm-hmm. I think my life has just been one which has been expanding in my knowledge really of of his, un- his love, which I now see as unconditional. Really? Which is, which is absolutely amazing because, and I've been believing this and living this now for maybe the last 10 years, and it set me free from the law and the religion of man and mm-hmm. the control and the and not accepting people and, and, and putting them under conditions and um, putting burdens on them that they can't bear, just like the Pharisees did. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, I've, I've, I've been very blessed to, to know God's love from an early age. And when, when I realised that he wasn't the God of exclusive Lebanonism, then it's just been a, a, a gradual transformation, really, of coming out of years of hardcore legalism and bondage into realising that I'm loved unconditionally. That's been my life's journey, really, so far. When I was 21, right after I started going to movies and live music, I had two dreams in the same night that played for me as on the giant projector screen we'd use to watch film strips in my elementary school classroom. In the first dream, my parents were driving me to meeting, as we called church, on a Sunday morning. We drove by a regular church and it had a takeout window, and no one went in. It looked like a Burger King or a Wendy's. Folks were pulling up Sunday morning in their cars, lining them up at the takeout window, and one by one being given the little plastic cup with the grape juice and the little wafer. For entire families, there were those cardboard trays like the ones they hand in the window to you at Dairy Queen to hold a family set of blizzards and Sundays only for communion. This dream felt right to me as I dreamed it. Other churches were like McDonald's. Worship there was like driving through the takeout window. Fast, cheap, not nourishing, not demanding, not much of a commitment, not the real thing at all not like we had. But then I continued to dream about what we had. In the dream, we pulled up at our meeting hall, and it was a swimming pool in the dream, 
well, a tennis court with the pool where the court normally went, and scary-looking judges sitting atop lifeguard chair things and keeping watch on all of us. Their eyeballs were black spheres of pulsing malice. The tennis court, swimming pool, church was filled with water, which represented rebirth, purification, and most of all, the word of God to us, our church doctrine. And we were all encouraged to swim in it, though most people weren't swimming. They were just standing around, saying how great it was to have all that water available to us. I went in swimming. My mom, who didn't go in swimming, was very proud. And I found that the water was so cloudy you couldn't see through it clearly. It was downright scummy, in fact, and disturbingly warm rather than refreshingly cool. It was, in fact, like swimming in warm spit. And there were bone-white spider creatures with spiteful black eyes in there under the water. Spiders the size of dinner plates, a lot like facehuggers from Alien, actually. And the deep end turned out to be a bit shallow, as shallow as the shallow end, in fact. When I surfaced, standing flat-footed with my feet on the bottom of what should have been the deep end, my scalp was itching like crazy, and when I scratched it, fountains of maggots like long strands of spaghetti started erupting out of my hair as the spiders in the water were laying millions of tiny eggs on our heads. I woke up just as I'd become a walking fountain of maggots, the other church folks recoiling from me in horror at what my immersion in the church teaching had wrought, and me gasping in breaths, and in doing so, breathing in lungfuls of flailing maggots. My dreams are seldom subtle or hard to figure out. No one needs Sigmund Freud for dreams like this. I got right back to sleep shortly after that dream, and dreamed again. I was walking to evening meeting after dark, worried about being late, and the guy in our church with the trucking company pulled up in a semi-transport trailer truck. He gestured for me to jump in the back of the long, dark trailer. He'd give me a lift. On Sundays, in real life, this guy picked up a busload of children from the poor districts of town, so this seemed kind of normal in the dream, too. I clambered up into the dark trailer. I held onto a ceiling strap in the dark as it lurched down the street. The floor was slippery. At the meeting hall, I leaped out, careful not to slip. Three brethren elders were standing to one side having an urgent conversation, heads bent close, speaking in hissed whispers. I went into the entryway of the church, and two of the meeting guys my age who were stricter than I was, who were increasingly disapproving of my going to movies and so on, had a bedroom set up in there. They were living in the entranceway to the meeting room, blocking the way in. I realized that the only way to get to meeting was to climb up onto that bed and from there onto a dresser and then on up through a little window that led to the attic above the meeting room. I was about to go through the little window up there when I looked down and noted that I'd tracked dirt all over their clean sheets. Well, not dirt, clotted blood. I'd gotten blood all over my shoes in that trailer that had been going around picking up teenagers. The man whose truck it was often shipped meat, but... I went outside and looked up at the attic window that is always dark as there's no light up there in the meeting hall attic. But in the dream, it was lit up. There was an old woman rocking in a rocking chair, knitting by the window. Then something heaved into view in front of her. It was a teenager who'd been zipped into a body bag and was trying to get out. Presumably, it was one of the adolescents our group had been picking up from the neighborhood. Someone who'd climbed up through the window in the entranceway of the meeting hall. The old woman grabbed something heavy and clubbed the figure to the floor, where it then lay still in its body bag. I stormed over to the three older brothers who were deep in conversation and pointed up to the attic window. We're hurting young people, I complained. 
We're pretending we're going to help young people, but we're shutting them up in here and killing them. They turned to me with annoyance and said, as if talking to a very stupid child, Shut up. We know. We're collecting the letters of a demonic alphabet to do dark magics with, and we've got almost all of the vowels. And I walked away from them, and I woke up. I woke up and thought about what my true feelings about my church group seemed to be becoming. It took that group another five or six years to toss me to the curb. And do you know what the most common answer has been whenever I have confronted a group with all the bad stuff that's going on in it that people are increasingly knowing about? We know. Now shut up. I cannot imagine a more depressing response to get. I need, at this point for some reason, to synthesize two avenues of thought as to cultures of structure and rules. Cheryl and Angel, having extensive experiences of cults, have an answer to every time I ask John Spinks what the reason behind a seemingly arbitrary rule was. Why couldn't men in his brethren group wear ties or have facial hair? Why couldn't members own pets? Why couldn't women wear trousers or have short hair? I never got to know why. It's them wanting to remain in control of the power dynamic. Control, they said, standardization, uniformity, tribalism even, a quick way to recognize in-group versus out-group people. If you asked any of us at the time why we didn't do this or that enjoyable, harmless thing, we'd sure enough tell you that we were trying to live to please the Lord. In fact, though, we are trying to live so as not to lose points within our church group. And that's not quite the same. When people, especially young or female people, are eagerly pursuing and enjoying something, whether you're a controlling parent, an abusive spouse, or a strict church group, you see right away that you're not in control of that situation. Their joy and passion are taking them places, places that have nothing to do with you. An unthinking impulse is to try to replace whatever has their attention with, well, you in some form, something you're doing or are a part of. Tossing in some fear is always good. To say... That movie was created by Satan, by this hateful dark world, this patriarchal, systemically racist society, to perpetuate and reaffirm the current wicked, evil, corrupt state of affairs, keeping us all struggling under the patriarchy or Satan. And just as quickly as you have that impulse to resent what your Derrida and Darby-trained brain has you viewing as corrupt, selfish control structures, another impulse joins that one to create or champion a replacement control system, to annihilate, demolish, and blow up all the tired old language and limits, terminology and boundaries, categories and definitions, and immediately replace them with ones that you like better. The second avenue of thought I'm going to throw into the mix, along with Angel and Cheryl's points about control, comes from listening to the Bema podcast with Brent Billing and Marty Solomon, who endeavor to look at Christianity and the Bible from a more Jewish perspective than fundamentalism and evangelicalism generally do. According to them, maybe the point isn't just what are the rules and who is and who isn't following them. Maybe there needs to be someone or something being served by those rules other than just tradition and homogeneity. So say there's this rule or limit someone other than you wants to impose upon you. Maybe it's not watching Netflix content with sex and violence or sexism and violence against women, whichever is your bugaboo. Maybe it's not driving drunk. Maybe it's not wasting time on Facebook. Now, if you decide not to be limited by that proposed limit, that's pretty much the end of the discussion, unless the police or your church, girlfriend, or employer gets involved and starts more aggressively trying to take those choices away from you. Then it's a fight. But what if you yourself decide to set a limit and be limited by it in some given way of your choosing? 
you're not eating refined sugar next year. You're not eating meat next year. You're not going to rant on Twitter next year. You're not going to online gamble next year. Well, that's simple. There's a rule or limit. You're choosing to follow it. The rule doesn't come from some mysterious other place, some hierarchy, and the reason for it isn't mysterious or unknowable either. You're likely doing it for some intrinsic reason rather than an extrinsic one. In other words, you're banking on keeping this rule helping you out all by itself, rather than memorizing Bible verses each week because you're going to get a cheap pencil sharpener in the shape of a plastic boat with a Bible verse printed on it in gold lettering at the end of the year. If you cancel your subscription to Netflix and stop online gambling, maybe you can, by doing so, save enough for a new circular saw. Maybe if you stop drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels every single day before lunch, you will live to be 40. Necessity is the mother of the rule, rather than someone else's need to control how you get joy. Related to that, Marty and Brent toss a wrinkle into this discussion about rules. Why are you choosing to follow it exactly? Now, we were all spawned in a crowded fish-eat-fish fish tank of legalism. Despite this, we grew up knowing the Bible's criticisms of people who did things to put on a religious display, or who kept rules to be rule-keeping champions, winning at that rule-keeping game, or feeling empowered to criticize anyone who fell below them in the rule-keeping competition. We knew what Jesus has to say about people who kept the letter or wording of the law, keeping it technically, without getting the spirit or reason behind the limits in question. Marty and Brent point out that in the Old Testament, the patriarchs are justified first, then given rules and Jewish law limits and rituals later. The justification is grace, faith-related, trusting and believing God, and the life limits follow later on. The Jewish law was never presented as a way for flawed people to get justified before God, and so, of course, it never did that. It wasn't given to anyone except people who already had a relationship with him either. Now, I'm not Jewish, so the Jewish culture, customs, and law were not intended for me. And there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests Gentiles like me ought to convert to Judaism to get right with God. And Jesus' approach to the Sabbath and other things shows him presenting the law as boundaries placed for ordinary circumstances and which clearly did not help or apply in certain other circumstances. And bad news for people who want to just technically keep from breaking rules? In the Bible, God has a problem with far more than just people's obedience and rule following. Seems to have more of a problem, in fact, with distrust, disbelief, and faithlessness in people's relationship to him and their feelings toward and treatment of others, actually. Cain messed things up by murdering his brother out of jealousy that his brother worshipped better than he did, but there were no Ten Commandments with Thou shalt not kill that Cain was breaking, was being disobedient to. Killing his brother wasn't Cain disobeying any rule he'd been given. Cain was still in trouble, though, waiting in it, because he created a bunch of trouble. For his brother, certainly. I don't believe in evil. I, I think that evil is a bit of a cop-out. I, I really, really don't. If I somehow had a way of knowing for certain that starting tomorrow, there would no longer be bad, corrupt, evil men doing bad, corrupt, evil things to other people in the world, hurting women and children, and that it wasn't just that we were no longer going to call them evil, but perhaps humanity challenged or empathy deficient or virtue handicapped, but that from now on, we knew for certain that the world would simply contain none of them, nor their behavior. This would be fantastic news, and a great change from the world in which we actually live today. 
Oh, I know it's fashionable to view people who do monstrous things to others as sick rather than evil, but you know what else I've noticed? The most common biblical language surrounding evil is that it is just that, a disease, an infection, a sickness. I, I, I also, I'm, and this isn't a particularly unpopular opinion, but I think that we're all gray. Uh, I, I think stories about good and, and evil and, uh, and villains and heroes are awesome. They're a lot of fun, but life's just not like that. I think to feel that you can be corrupted means that you have to believe that there are black and white evil and good things, and I, and I really don't at all. Now, I know Johan means this to apply to people, but does this mean he doesn't believe there are good movies and bad movies? Because there are. Whether I enjoy them or not is a whole other question. Some of the entertainment things I enjoy are objectively poorly made and conceived. Some of the entertainment things I just don't get are masterfully made and conceived. I suppose Johan just means that in his view of a universe without a god, there's no standard for absolute good, and therefore no real way to measure properly whether something or someone is good or bad. But Johan's job actually involves daily affixing numeric judgments of varying goodness or badness to student writing and thinking. Maybe when he speaks of gray and good and evil, he's only talking about ethics and morality and not talent, beauty, truth, passion, humor, and excellence. But maybe I'm not sure anymore they're as separate as we like to think. The English word evil is, in Latin-derived French, the word mal. It means sick, and it means bad in French. You don't say, I have a headache in French. You say, I have evil of the head. You don't say, you painted incorrectly. You say, you painted poorly or evilly. You painted ill, sickly. We used to use the word evil that way in English, of course, too. And the word ill still works that way for us. I can feel ill, or I can say someone is involved for good or for ill in something. Whether we believe in certain metaphysical senses of the English word evil, we certainly use the word malice, malevolent, malicious, maleficent, and malignant. It was a German, Friedrich Nietzsche, who decided we needed to move beyond the ideas of right and wrong, good and bad, or good and evil. Nietzsche just meant that without God, he didn't believe we had any clear measuring stick for these terms. I disagree. I think people do stuff poorly, with malicious intent, and harming others every day, and I think we can tell when that happens. Some people make a habit of doing these things, and they can't or won't stop. I think trying to reword the reality that some things are bad or evil or wrong is just splitting hairs. I'm afraid my worldview involves the idea that some people are liars, some are thieves, some are rapists, and some are murderers. Some do these things over and over and feel absolutely nothing. And to my mind, that's not, and they're not, gray. I see theft, rape, and murder, and the people who engage in them, generally in very black and white terms. I also believe in psychopaths, sociopaths, and run-of-the-mill narcissists, and I can't see them as just gray. I think they're bad. Corrupt, dangerous, harmful, exploitative, and yes, I will use the word evil to describe people who do things like torture women or children to death for their own pleasure, or who perform things like, say, cannibalism. Some people are dangerous. Also, some people are just assholes, sleazes, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein, and his Lane Maxwell, or whoever you say her name, and too many others, for example. 
I think any other view about the nature of humanity is naive and childish, spoken from a position of privilege, as they say, very middle class and safe. I know it's very fashionable to view people who have a lifelong pattern of hurting kids as merely sick and very much in need of our help and mainly to be pitied. I don't see it that way. The Bible certainly presents the idea that there is redemption and a way back even for people living like that in the world if they want it. But the language of the Bible about people doing that kind of thing and who are set to continue doing that kind of thing is considerably harsher than is currently fashionable. John Douglas invented the profiling of serial killers for the FBI in the 60s and 70s. Douglas went around and interviewed as many of them as he could. David Berkowitz, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, Edmund Kemper, James Earl Ray, Richard Speck, and many, many others. Here's Douglas talking on the DVD commentary track for the movie Silence of the Lambs. My mission was to educate the best way I could. Jody Foster, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, who's uh, Buffalo Bill, but particularly Scott Glenn, because he was going to portray me. Initially, he was, he was very liberal. He was against the death penalty. And then I let him listen to a tape of two killers in Los Angeles, Bitteker and Norris, whose goal was, was to pick up a teenager for every year, starting at 13, and torture them for hours and make audio tapes of the kill and play back the audio tapes of their screaming and, and their yelling and their begging to, to be killed, to take them out of their misery. So I turned this tape on. And he listened to one minute of this tape, and he had tears in his eyes. And here's Anthony Hopkins, the actor who played fictional serial killer Hannibal Lecter, on the same commentary, explaining what was going through his head when he did his best to dramatically depict evil. There's something mechanistic about evil, something mundane. And somebody described being inside the Third Reich, inside Adolf Hitler's Germany, as something so cheap so mundane, so prosaic, so camp, that it was like being in a piece of machinery. The Hitler was an empty piece of machinery, like the ghost in the machine. Albert Speer describes him as that, and Albert Speer was his close associate, described Hitler as a totally empty man, inert and dead. But as soon as he got onto that podium to speak, he aroused 80 million people to the most horrifying nightmare of the 20th century. There's something soulless about this kind of person. Hannibal Lecter was entirely fictional, but the serial killer Buffalo Bill in the movie was a compilation of three actual serial killers who John Douglas spoke with extensively. Gary Heidnick would uh, go on the hunt, pick up women, and, and what he did is he had a pit, like in The Silence of the Lambs, in his cellar. The only difference with Gary Heidnick is, is he filled the pit up with water and he put three women in there at once. And then he got an electric wire and he touched the handcuffs to one of the victims and electrocuted her while standing in the water, put her in a freezer. After her body was frozen, took her out of the freezer, ground her body up with uh, dog food and fed it to the rest of the victims. You just can't believe that there are people out there that just want to hurt other people. It's not just the sex, it's just not to rape, it's to destroy their fellow man. And there's no feeling. I certainly make no claims to be an unusually good person, 
But that sounds like a pretty dark shade of gray to me. Just like with anyone else, Douglas feels that what really reveals the character of a serial killer or sexual predator is how he or she relates and interacts with other human beings. One of the things that always amazed me was that people in the mental health profession and the correctional associations would, uh, would determine whether or not someone is guilty or innocent, psychotic or was sane when they committed a crime, having never looked at the crime scene photographs. If they would look at the crime scene photographs of the victims, say, of a serial killer, that that would prejudice them. It was just always amazing to me because to understand the criminal personality and to understand the serial murderer, you must look at their handiwork. If you don't do that, you really don't know who you're talking to. And when you're analyzing a crime scene, you must do a victimology, a profile of the victim first. So when I'm looking at a pattern of wounds, I'm trying to learn what this victim was probably experiencing, what she probably heard from this killer, what she probably saw from this killer. Douglas's conclusion was that medicalizing the language surrounding people like that missed out on the simple fact that they are functional personalities who choose quite successfully to do evil and often do this for some time, avoiding being caught. And they do it because they want to, because that's who and what they are. Efforts to find some root trauma that made Ted Bundy, who he was, ultimately failed. According to John Douglas, someone like Ted Bundy was evil, a predator. And I defer to John Douglas as having a far broader and deeper expertise on the subject of evil and human behavior than I ever will. I have taught students who've murdered their grandmas, ones who were serial statutory rapists preying on passed out 14-year-old girls at parties, and ones who did home invasions, including breaking into old women's homes and urinating into a jar and making the senior citizen drink it. And for me, that's enough to make me believe that some actions and some people are, and do, evil. I don't think it's just all a matter of perspective and point of view in certain extreme cases. Why do we follow and even set rules to begin with? What were the Ten Commandments trying to do? To make people live more like good people, and to keep them from living like bad people, I think. To give them a standard by which to avoid some of the all-too-common human failings, like idolatry. Treating things, for example, laws and religions and competitive piety and show lives, as the most important and maybe the only important things there are. The things that will save or damn us. Things that mean more to us eventually than God ever could. Things we never stop arguing about on Facebook. Yes, but how would that look? What message would it send? What kind of example is that setting? What kind of precedent? It's a slippery slope, I tell you. According to Marty and Brent, not breaking rules doesn't make us okay before God. God himself does that. No matter what rules you follow or don't follow, if God justifies you and you and he think of some ways you might change and direct and limit or expand bits of your life, you aren't doing those latter things to get justified with God. You're not doing it for him to become cool with you. You're doing them because they're good things you want to aspire to. It's one thing to not be in trouble with dad. It's another thing to start a family business with dad and do what it takes to make it a good, useful, successful one. If there's no God and no good, what are you aspiring to do and be? Gray? 
If, like Hamlet and Ben Kenobi, you tell me there's nothing really good or bad, and it's just point of view or thinking that makes it so, ultimately, I don't believe you, because I see how you live. On some level, you're trying to do and be good. You think it's real enough to do that all right. No one wakes up and aspires to being gray. Gray isn't a goal. Johan agrees that stories with good and evil people, places, events, and things in them are awesome. And Johan himself devotes endless time and money and effort trying to achieve good for his family, his co-workers, his students, and people less fortunate than any of us. Johan may, in a surprisingly Christian way, humbly claim to be gray, to be no saint, to be nothing special, and in a Gen X Canadian way claim that no one's anything special, really. But if you keep your eyes open, it's clear that Johan's aspiring to do and create and maintain and be good. Do I believe in corrupt and unclean people? Absolutely not. No, I think that's nonsense. I think the whole concept of evil is absolute nonsense. It's just an excuse, isn't it? He certainly is not cool with people hurting other people, lying, cheating, and doing bad things. Johan does seem to believe that some things are true and some things are false, that some things help and some things hurt, and the same is true of people. You can sometimes even identify in the moment that, you know what, this, this discussion isn't bringing out the best in me and I need to pull away from it. I've got friends who um, are different than me politically, you know, philosophically, even morally, and, and so I... I uh, I, I do have those kind of conversations, um, and and I think those make me a better person. I, I think that they strengthen me because I, I can kind of walk a few feet in their, in their footsteps. He did not think the murder of George Floyd was just gray, or that it was whatever different people with their differing points of view went on to decide that it was, whether good or bad. But at the same time, as I get older, <laughs> I guess I just, I feel more and more that I am right about the things that I have cemented into place. I think Johan agrees that goodness is real enough for us to reach after, whether a perfect ruler for measuring good or bad exists in the sky or not, whether one can really ever be or do it. It's a star to steer by, a destination to sail toward. And this all must sound odd coming from me, as I'm first in line to point out that people walk around all day long talking about things being positive or negative, when really they're just saying if they like a thing or not. I think that's because I'm genuinely trying to be and do good, because I believe good is a real thing, and not just something to do with not breaking rules or being positive, which means doing or saying whatever people wanted. Marty would say that good and life are not video game levels that you need to complete without making any mistakes. He might talk about journey as being as important as destination, the one not existing without the other, process and product being equally important. Or, or maybe not, I don't know. And I've only listened to about 100 hours of Marty talking extremely quickly. This discussion could go on and on and on unless I try to reach some kind of conclusion to it. Time to try to wrap it up. To recap, I was raised with far too many rules in place to control us and make us focus our lives on what our group wanted us to focus on, the group itself and its rules. In fact, my observation of modern Plymouth Brethren life is that if you remove the rules from a Plymouth Brethren group, 
it soon becomes obvious that not a whole hell of a lot else goes on there, that that's its function, to provide limits and structure just like Sinners Anonymous, as those boundaries that exist in mainstream society are considered inadequate and not nearly cautious enough, to make sure lives stay smaller and more predictable on the straight and narrow path. Melody certainly remembers having her intended life path narrowed by group indoctrination. So our church is moving to the right. It's, it's getting more conservative, and it's giving me bad vibes. Back in the days of the hippies, the right was about censorship, controlling and limiting human choices and behavior, and enforcing a whole lot of rules. The left was about asking questions like, why does anyone have a bath, go to a job, or get married, man? Why do we need to wear pants? It's 1971, man. When are we going to finally live in a world where we can enjoy, do, and say whatever we want without some uptight square person trying to bring us down and control us, man? Over the course of my lifetime, the left has more than caught up with the right with pursuit of exactly the same hobbies. Censorship, controlling, and limiting human choices and behavior, and enforcing a whole lot of rules. Like when I'm with my friends um, who are believers, we, I talk about this and I feel like, I, why, like, why am I always talking about it? Why does everything remind me of the church I grew up in? Uh, it's really bothering me specifically right now because there's a ton of change in my job. I work for the news media. I work for a newspaper. That is an industry that is spiraling downward. What it brings up is I have a very specific memory. Um, I was either a senior in high school or I was um, somewhere in college. And I was talking to somebody and kind of stressing out a little bit about my finals and grades and stuff like that. And they said to me, this will all seem so unimportant when you're married with children. Basically, don't worry about your grades. Don't worry about your career. Don't even think about it. Your husband's going to take care of you. And literally, that was my mind. I still went to college. I got good grades. But I never had any idea of a career because I was going to get married. I was going to have children. And all I needed to do was have enough skills to get a part-time job because that was all that I was ever going to need. And so now I'm 46. Um, I never considered the thought of a career until I was 35 and getting divorced. So I'm decades behind everybody else. I can't afford to go back to school for anything. And I'm like, oh, what's happening? I'm, you know, doggy paddling, trying to stay above the water. Because you ended up, if I recall, um, you got married, which many of us didn't do, but you ended up with like the sort of husband that needs you to be his mother instead of your yes. mother. Yes. Yep. Oh, yes. But he was an acceptable choice for me because he was a member of the of Brethren course. Church that I was attending. So he was fine. No questions asked. We've really lowered the standards for what we ask of men nowadays. Um, as long as they can cry, we're good, as far as I can tell. You couldn't even cry. No. No. <laughs> I've never got the hang of crying either, but uh, I cry with my fists, I tell people. But that's not a marital comment. I'm not married. Um, I don't punch people. But Angel spoke with me about the difficulty in leaving groups like our group. I was excommunicated fairly against my will in 1997, so it's been a long time. Okay. Um, I was excommunicated for satire and parody, which is very me. Not, not everybody in the world can say that. 
but um, that's that was the reason. But I don't think that's really the reason. Really, the reason right. was that I was my thoughts had gotten freer, right? So they yes. like. I'm sure you could relate to that, the idea that even if you're just walking around in the room, more or less doing what you're supposed to, if, if they can tell from talking to you that your thoughts are starting to free yeah. up, they're, they're not comfortable. Mm -mm. Did you have that point where your thoughts started to I drift did. a bit? No. So what they did is they got my brain very young and they had from like six to eight years old, mm -hmm. they had this whole thing where they would teach the kids not to daydream. Right. But they actually taught us not to think. And they said, when you find your mind wandering, you have to bring it back to Jesus, or you have to go out yourself to your teacher, tell your teacher you're having thoughts that are not about God. And it could be about anything. It could be like, if you're thinking about your friend and a fun thing you're going to do with your friend, that's daydreaming. Stop thinking about your friend. Go back to your Bible verses. Mm -hmm. So they set us up to police our own thoughts and then out ourselves if we thought different thoughts. So... There wasn't a moment where I started to become freer. I was still, I remained until I had left, until like years after I had left, I remained policing my own thoughts because I didn't want to have a thought that could potentially sick the uh, forces of God or Satan on me to attack me. Because that's what I was taught, that if you have your own thoughts, God has to attack you and God knows all of your thoughts. Uh, idle mind is the devil's playground. So I didn't have those moments, but I could tell when someone else was going through, or they would be like, this is what I'm going through. Or they, these are the thoughts that I'm having. I would be like, stop having them like stop. Mm -hmm. And it feels dangerous. And so I was very good with not having my own thoughts. And if I would catch myself, I would immediately like start praying right away. But I saw that in other people. I, d I didn't experience it personally. We're, we were lucky. I'm sure that they turned a blind eye to the fact that we were mostly daydreaming most of the young people but mm -hmm. i i've always had a problem with not being able to zone out i i listen so like and my group we had church five times a week uh, for over an hour <laughs> so by the time by the time i yeah woo indeed by the time i had my driver's license i calculated that i had gone to nearly two thousand hours of church and that's indoctrination for sure oh and God. And, and it all by itself pretty much guarantees that you can't do a lot of other things because your schedule is so taken up. But I had to listen. So I listened to all of that. And I think that's part of the problem was I was listening. And I don't think they were expecting us to listen as closely as I was listening. And, and it started yeah. to not, not add up. And I was walking around with contradictions in mind. So many of us tried letting go of those ingrained church rules, those limits, the limits weren't just outward, they were very, very mental and psychological and emotional. Some people, like me, have found it a lifelong battle to get much freer at all, because that stuff was imprinted in our DNA by then. Some of us are still pretty much all about no, about caution, asking why rather than why not most days. I certainly think and speak and associate more freely now than my church intended because those battles for my mundane freedoms seem worth it to me. But generally, I do not live terribly freely or colorfully. I had to fight very hard for each freedom. And so if I didn't feel like poker or horse racing or voting or Christmas trees or cocaine would be really fun and make me feel wonderful, I didn't fight terribly hard to eradicate my childhood training against any of those things and didn't pursue them. I've still never had a Christmas tree.
I live like a monk mostly. Not enjoying or doing things or going anywhere is my default setting. It's always easier to do nothing. So what I've done is try to find things that seem worth pursuing and get in the habit of pursuing them in a way that makes sense to me. Other people, like me, slid in under 10 years from not drinking alcohol ever right into jail for substance abuse offenses, and they're still working all of that out. Others became strippers in Vegas. Others are dead. So the question Marty and Brent seem to be suggesting is this. What do you want to do with your life? Just that. Nothing big or hard to answer. I want to rock. If you have a direction or vision for your life, then various limits are going to present themselves as things that won't help you get there. If you don't have a direction, then you might be tempted to make life about the rules themselves, to make them their own destination and point. Why not? You're not doing anything else. Might look like this. Rule number one is there are no rules. Rule number two is you don't talk about the rules. Rule three is you must punish everyone who breaks or even criticizes, see rules one and two, the rules, in even the slightest of ways, and raise children not to even think about breaking them without ever quite telling them what the rules are. Rule four is that there are no rules. If watching MacGyver had been bad for me, then my parents would have been wise to forbid me from watching it for that reason. That would have made sense and been wisdom and loving parental concern. But in retrospect, that wasn't what was really going on. In fact, they were trying to ensure our family's Plymouth Brethren piety performance didn't lose points from the Russian judges for childhood TV watching. So, they were forcing my life into a very unnatural shape to fit the performance we were giving. And raising children with their lives all warped from revolving around what other people might think or expect is very bad for them, as will be seen once they grow up see Michael Jackson and any number of child actors who used to work for the Disney Channel. I'm sure that you uh, are familiar with what happens when you present that you have this little problem and it's that you think there's a contradiction in something someone said and how that's received. Oh my gosh. Well, they had an explanation for everything and this is why I'm also really good with um, not having conversations with narcissists now. They're so easy to spot and what you do is you call out a contradiction Mm -hmm. and abnormal person will be like, oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, you're right. I did contradict myself. Oh, which one do I believe? And a narcissist or somebody who needs some sort of control over you will tell you, no, 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 no. I didn't contradict myself. You're not understanding it. Mm -hmm. And then they'll come up with a very, very elaborate scenario that's incredibly confusing in order to make it okay that what they offer to you is full of contradictions because we had to hold so many contradictory beliefs. And there were so many times where like irrefutable proof would come out Mm -hmm. that, you know, they said Jesus was going to come back in Y2K. They were like, Y2K, something big is going to happen. And then Y2K happens and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, here's all this literature where you're saying that the year 2000 is when you know, all these things are going to happen and everyone was ready and everyone was, you know, packed with stuff in their bunker and we have clothing and tents and food to last us for a year and we're all ready for the tribulation, but it's not started. And then it was like, no, 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 no. All those things were supposed to happen, but because we weren't obedient enough, because some of you were disobedient, the Lord has pushed the timeline so that 
you have more time to be more obedient so he has better soldiers for the end. And then they did a whole renewal thing where everyone had to recommit to God and prove that they were obedient and worth the extra time. They told us that God didn't operate according to a chronological clock, but a spiritual clock. Yes. So I would like to tell you that I did, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I absolutely do because the beast will roar in 84 and you know, Lord's Mm -hmm. coming in 1990 and 1992, 1998 and Y2K and 2011. And so We've had this. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure not, we're not the only groups with that either. Of course, suddenly it dawned on me. Oh, I see what happened. We were convinced that on May 21, a God would return here in a very physical way. That is, that in a, by bringing a great earthquake and by ushering in the final five months of the Day of Judgment and uh, and. Uh, and the fact is, when we look at it spiritually, then we find he did. That's hard to convey. Like, I didn't know that some evangelical churches are sort of kingdom focused and some are rapture focused. Yeah. And so those of us like you and I, it's, it's, and I almost think it appeals to different personalities. So I may have long since left my church, but it's very, the idea that the world is ending soon, let's just say, is a very appealing and it's, it's very easy to convince me that everything is going wrong and the world is burning out a lot of the time. That's how my mind, I was raised to think that way, but it's also, I think, part of my personality. Whereas other people unthinkingly approach religion and basically say, where's the fun? Like, where's the euphoric experience that I'm looking for? And I can't, yeah. I can't understand that. I saw a documentary about Black gospel music in the American South. And what amazed me is, in that case, it, there was poverty, but it was almost more of a racial thing that all of the hymns were different. So Mm -hmm. the white middle-class folks all week long, they tried to make money and acquire things. And then Sunday morning, they were to be grateful and shameful for their sins and thankful for what they had and remind themselves to be better. And it was like, sort of hang your head and be quiet. And the black Southern Baptist church, it was like, nobody cares about you during the week, but on Sunday, like God knows your name and you should say hi to him and sing and wear your red hat and just like go out. And, and the songs that we sang were about, I'm nothing. I'm a worm of the dust. I am prideful. (laughs) Their songs were about say hi to God. He knows your name. We're going to get over the river. And to my mind, that, that was like an enormous difference. Wow. Yeah, that is, that's super different. So as Angel and Cheryl point out, the parents and eventually we children as well, were helping control ourselves and each other. We kept alive that culture that made us focus on the group and its consistently denied rules to the exception of almost anything else but the rules. And as Marty and Brent point out, the rules need to serve a purpose that is sensible and worth it. If you severely limit everyone's life due to a genuine danger or in pursuit of an achievable good, and your limits end up having been proportionate and wise and effective, then the future will look back with approval. If not, we're going to feel pretty silly about how we handled things like fear of commies, Call of Duty, crack, and COVID. Cheryl points out that simply forbidding things isn't dealing with the situation. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't fix anything. It just keeps you busy pointing fingers and punishing people for doing the forbidden things. God looks on the inner things of the heart, the Bible says. In order for life limits to make sense, you need to be trying to achieve something other than successfully setting and keeping rules and limits. 
America, being the land of the free and the home of the brave, has tried to limit all manner of things, including the aforementioned commies, as well as women and minorities voting, burning flags, and people using alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs, rather than letting citizens regulate themselves and follow paths of common sense. And America tried hard, it must be said, to limit all those things, really hard. And it really didn't work. Take it from their upstairs roommate, America as a country is any number of truly wonderful things. But quiet, cautious, and subtle are not three of those. And we Canadians are, as usual, a half-step behind them, with one eye on what's going on in Europe and one eye on the cool frat boys having a loud party downstairs. And a key tip, if you're Satan, if you want to control people, use their fear and enlist their pride, too. A famous guy said you could make an entire nation do almost anything, including go to war when they didn't want to, by telling them they were in danger and scaring the heck out of them and pointing them at whatever enemy you felt like. That guy was famous because he was Hermann Goering, who helped Hitler start World War II and plunge Germany into war with the rest of the planet. My sister Debbie has some thoughts on the role of fear in her life. Another thing that just came to my mind was also just the number of of fear thoughts mm-hmm. that would come into mind and i always thought that oh i was raised in you know i was raised on fear mm-hmm. so it was sort of built into me and then i started realizing as i started raising my own kids that um our societies are built on fear we scare the crap out of each other to motivate each other to do things fear is used so often even with you know with pandemics, all the the fear-mongering. Fear is a huge um, technique to make people think and behave in ways that others want them to. So I've had a lot of time working on um, just my own um, fear thoughts that just pop in and and how to just kind of unhook from them because they don't do you any good. Despite being an atheist for some time, Emily remembers suffering a church-trained fear of hell, which she feared without any longer believing in. I wondered if you relate to that, and did you have, and do you have, like, lingering things that are still in your head, and it's from church? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're raised in that kind of environment, uh, it stays with you forever. The way you grow up remains with you, and it's part of you. There's definitely uh, some of my thought patterns and behavior patterns that I know were shaped by my early experiences as um, a member of a very specific and small religious circle. And so I think it was the philosopher A.C. Grayling who said that once you're religious, if you're raised in a religious environment, you can never stop that basically. So you have um, people who were raised in Catholicism and they've become atheists, but they're Catholic atheists. Yeah. And I relate to that because uh, that's the way I feel. You know, I was raised in a Christian environment. And although I am, don't profess uh, religious belief at this point in my life, I still feel like in many ways I'm a Christian atheist. My upbringing was very much that the world was doomed. It was burning, it was going to burn, and it was almost on the way right now. And whatever my beliefs do, 
in terms of the Bible, my default expectation is that the world might not be be here in 100 years in the form that we know, like human civilization, like it's all going to burn. That's part of my expectation because of my upbringing. And I know that some people, things like uh, doomsday cults are more than usually appealing to them because they were raised that way. Or people with you know extreme environmentalist terrors about the planet is, is going to be gone um, or society is going to collapse. That feeds that. And there's the opposite, like in, in kind of a good way. I think a lot of Christians are raised that a major purpose of their life is to make the world a better place and to help others. And I know a lot of people have become atheists and they do more charity work than they probably did when they were in a church because that stuck with them, that they were raised that you are here to make things better. I wasn't raised that I'm here to make things better. I was raised that here sucks and it's a hell to live here. And that has stuck with me. I'm not 100% convinced that the same thing happens to everybody with upbringing, but I do think that uh, if it appeals to you, especially if you buy into it, like if you kind of throw your lot in with your upbringing, you can switch delivery mechanisms, but you still have sort of the same worldview. What were some of the most tenacious things that you really wanted to lose that you think came from church? After I stopped professing Christianity, I had a couple years where I really struggled with the concept of hell still. And it took a while to get rid of that. You know, there was that lingering, mm-hmm. oh gosh, you know, now I don't profess to be a Christian anymore. I've walked away from my faith. Am I going to hell? So that one took quite a few years to shake. And, uh, you know, once I did it, I was able to shake my belief in heaven um, as well and of an afterlife in general. It happened eventually, but it took a while. Was that easier or harder than all that purity culture, gender role stuff? You know, I think that it was harder because I started working on the whole purity culture and gender role aspect of things when I was a teenager. I suspect that was part of what was moving you out of it to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that because I started to think that it was crap you know, even when I was a teenager to say like, what this whole give your heart away thing doesn't even make any sense. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, once you're out of a relationship with someone, you're out, of course, I'm going to give all myself to all of myself to the next person I'm in a relationship with, I'm not going to hold back. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. As to what's stuck from childhood indoctrination, Gloria says, The thought that being born again meant peace, joy, and a fundamental change in my temperament. It didn't register that I was just human, start to finish, and that Christ saved me as I am. So a lot of guilt and self-doubt plagued me. Was I saved? Shouldn't I be sanctified by now? I read a book recently by a little-known brethren man a man excommunicated by Jay and Darby that clarified this distorted thinking. It's taken me a very long time to shake off this expectation of new creation right now. Echoing Melody's thoughts as to growing up in a brethren group, on Facebook, Ruth commented, Still struggling to move on from always believing that the men in my life know more than I do and that I have to defer to their judgment no matter how much more I might know or intuit. 
I have to admit that when talking with Ruth, when she agrees or echoes my wording too quickly, I worry that this is brethren training. When I was 10, I read a chapter of the Bible every morning because that was the rule. And rules and routine can be very comforting. But as an adult, eventually it wasn't a rule anymore, as the relationship between me and the people who used to hold this control over me broke down and disintegrated over time, and I didn't want to please them or be like them anymore. Once the rule and the training ebbed away from me, the behavior did too. Nowadays, I read the Bible not at all, or because I want to know God or the Bible itself better. And that's not the same as following someone else's rule, a routine of doing it every morning because of the other people and their rules. This is what being a grown-up feels like, deciding what the rules and routines are going to be each week and adjusting and amending them as necessary, and repeatedly, firmly pushing away all the people who want more control over my life than I'm willing to give them. This song is about waiting helplessly, hoping some of that indoctrination might start to wear off, that you'd find some way to purge it out of your brain. You see, I wasn't willing to get blind drunk so I could overcome the shame of going to a concert or hockey game, renting movies, or drinking alcohol. I waited for the indoctrination to start to loosen its grip on me, and it took a while. Forever, in fact, in young people years. And I wrote this song about it. I ruefully explained to Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes about I was writing lyrics first, which many songwriters don't do. Thing is, for me, music is generally a recreational and at most a self-expression thing, a hobby. For Jay, a lifelong music professional, it's more than just that. It was always the lyrics. So I would write the lyrics and I wouldn't take lessons and I wouldn't get to be amazingly good at the music. I would just write the music as a vehicle for the lyrics. And, and it's very obvious that what I'm doing, that my heart's really in what I'm trying to say with the words. And that's not as, as good an experience, I think, for a listener. Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of, I, I find there's three ways for me to listen to music now. One is with uh, listening very closely to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's somebody who's, who you know has generally quite often interesting lyrics, like Elvis Costello, for instance, you know, there's always going to be something pretty interesting and somewhat quirky about his writing. And at the same time, I can dig pop songs that are like current songs on the radio that really aren't, don't have any earth shaking lyrics, but they fit the music. It all fits like it works, you know, and that's, that's the reason so many people end up liking it, you know? And the third thing is music without lyrics. And if I'm, if I'm working at home, I I like to listen to, if I'm listening to any music at all in the background, I put on Baroque, the Baroque channel Mm -hmm. from uh, the CBC satellite thing that comes through the TV because it's just subtle and I can focus. I find when I'm hearing lyrics, my ears get drawn to them. I'm the same. If I'm working on something else, you know. Absolutely. Like uh, the way I used to listen to music when I was a teenager and in my 20s was I would go and buy the cassette tape because they were cassette tapes. And uh, I would get out the liner notes because all my favorite ones had all the notes. And I would read all of the lyrics and I would see who, it, were there any guest musicians and all that stuff first and then listen to it. So I'd be listening and, and trying to hear, you know, here's this the guest musician. So so with the Pikes, I absolutely did that. I uh, did that with Neil Young. And I did that with John Gorka. Uh, And the thing that I really liked about the Pikes and about John Gorka is a a thing I've mentioned to you that Morrissey does, where the song just has a really harsh 
line, something really nihilistic right in the middle there, but with a little bit, little bit of humor surrounding it. And I think I picked up that, that habit myself. Some singer-songwriters of indifferent instrumental and production ability luck out and get embraced by a band of guys. Normally, this is a matter of a bunch of guys who play instruments really well, but who can't sing, needing a singer with frontman charisma and look at me for miles and miles. Then, said singer need never bother with learning all the rest. Well, I had no performance singing in frontman chops, so I was always a singleton in search of a girl and a band, with either, only very briefly, and the rest of the time, playing with himself. I just found a cassette recording of me in about 1995 playing for an actual band, unrehearsed, for the first time. I was going out to blues jams with highly trained musicians who mostly didn't or couldn't sing and could back up any guy who was singing the blues. One quiet night at blues jam at a tiny club in Ottawa called The Whipping Post after the Almond Brothers song rather than being that sort of a place, Knowing I occasionally went up by myself to sing my original songs on acoustic guitar, the band asked if I'd like to give the lead singer a break from his soulful blues by singing something. I had never played with a band before, and I didn't do the blues. There were about five people there who weren't on stage or behind the bar, and the place itself was about the size of my classroom nowadays. I didn't know any blues songs, and I didn't know what to play. But I'd been messing around with a novelty hit by British tongue-in-cheek blues-inspired New Age post-punk band The Monks. Their big hit was, I've got drugs in my pocket, don't know what to do with them. But I was working on one of their other songs called Nice Legs, Shame About Her Face. Because it was easy. Here's a snippet of me playing with a band of virtual strangers, the keyboard player Guy de Valeno singing along in a Cockney accent. This is the first time I ever played in front of an audience with a band.
When someone else is drumming and someone else is playing bass and your hackiest drumming on the singer's strat is more than backed by a lead guitarist and a keyboardist, you don't have to do a whole lot. At the Whipping Post, it was all about the extended blues jam. Being songwriter, engineer, mixer, singer, guitarist, backing harmony, bassist, all in one on a song in no particular danger of being listened to all over the nation is a whole other level of difficulty. When I first saw the show Flight of the Concords, I was struck by how much the two-chord intro to their theme song sounded like the intro to my song. It was an odd song for me, but it was very desperate and heartfelt, so I had George do drums on it in his music store. George played where the music and his fancy took him and was concerned afterward that he'd changed the basic concept and mood of the song too much, but I was looking to have more aggression and interest added to it. Mainly, I was looking to have ideas that weren't mine in there to respond to. That really helps. This song doesn't really sound like me being heavily influenced by any established musical act in particular, I don't think. It's just me being me, riding on the textures and momentum George was adding in, rather than trying out any specific other artist's sound. I did get an idea from a fundamentalist-raised minister's son, though. I had been fascinated at the story Alice Cooper told about wanting to get a desperate, trapped performance on his song The Ballad of Dwight Fry, and how they had him lie on the floor in the studio and piled a silly number of chairs on him. So when he spoke, saying, I've got to get out of here, from under there, it had more of an acting performance thing going on. I did no such thing, of course, as I don't have those kind of vocal moves, but went whole hog with layered vocals to try to sound pushed and desperate. This is a song about having a whole shame package installed in your head and being desperate to get it out when it's wound all through you inside and out from top to bottom. Reference is made in the lyrics to the legalistic, judging spider bugs laying itchy eggs all over one's head that I dreamed about when I was 21. I hacked away on the acoustic guitar hard, as I tend to do.
got pretty into playing the bass part, too. I turned the Vox amp up and played joyfully Rory chords. played a simple little filthy distorted Hammond B3 sounded like organ part that I liked. Naturally, when you pack in all this thick, loud goop, you have to go through and thin all the parts right down so you can hear anything at all. Otherwise, it's an undifferentiated roar that sounds like a garbage truck being driven slowly over your head. tried to make the chorus chorus, the harmony vocals, sound like the Beach Boys getting a tad bit upset over being overcharged $10 for their monthly cell service in July. The original intro to the song was a little cinematic sound design thingy that I did back in the day with the idea that the brethren and similar groups kind of reformatted dissenting voice members' brains like a failing hard drive on a computer. The fact that I recorded this on a Windows XP computer should give some idea of how old it is. The idea in it and the song proper is that my judgment and thinking remained faulty after what had been done to us. I didn't want God to get me out of my culture, but I sure wanted my culture out of my brain and soul a bit more, and to heal and grow in those areas in a healthy direction. I remember sticking a microphone right on top of a computer power supply that the fan was making a loud noise in, and getting Joel and Dave to help me out. I just asked Dave, can you do this in a Scottish accent? And of course he could. Um, yeah, okay, lie on the table and stick your feet in these. These will hold you still and this will come down and clump your head. Just bite down on this and we'll be standing way over here. Okay, just try to relax. Initiating micro spot walls XL. Commencing prefrontal restructuring. Checking compliance parameters. Warning, credibility buffers have no space remaining. Purge? Purge unsuccessful. Retry. Purge unsuccessful. Retry. Uh, yeah. Okay, here. Uh, disables individuality matrix protocols. Purge unsuccessful. Retry. Purge unsuccessful. 
Critical thinking paradigm is incompatible with Wells XL infrastructure. Damage meme contents in sector 1010. Repair. Warning. Repairing unit may result in complete unit destruction. Are you sure you want to attempt to repair? Yeah. Okay. Ignore that message. Just click OK. It always says that. Unable to repair. Copy of dissonance error in synapse 0010. This unit must be quarantined and deleted from the registry. Delete all records of procedure and deny occurrence. Okay. Unable to delete. Denial failed. Retry. Okay. Uh... Unable to delete. Denial file cannot be found. Error in unable to abort forbidden cognitive process. Proceed with unable to comply. Multi-phase interlock error in restarting the discombobulation procedure. Complete system screw up error. Microsoft thanks you. Thanks you for choosing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, hold that down with the fire extinguisher. Reform the procedure log manually. Juice this poor sap to the gills with 300 cc's of vacuoloft. Then stick him in holding cell 24B. This happens now and again, and it's no big sweat. But let's make sure that procedure log's blank, right? Blank. And seriously, get the fire extinguisher. That's all on fire again. I'll try to get this unstuck from his head. They've got the kids, they play no more. They gossip, gas, and cut and scrape. They've got the girls decent this hire. They've made the guys neutered safe. I'm in the walls, I'm in their cells. I'm in the doghouse on death row. Night of care, terminal wards. The rubber room where bad minds go. In you go, in you go, in you go. They're in my cup, they're in my pants, they're in 